Well, hey, everybody, welcome to the Pursue God podcast. It's Tuesday, and that means it's time for one more installment of our systematic theology series. I'm Pastor Brian, joined in the studio by Pastor Ross. Ross, today we're in topic number nine. This is the final topic in the module on salvation, and today we're going to talk about the Christian life, otherwise known as how someone who is saved will live. And so really what we're talking, if you think about the Pursue God circle, you know, being a full circle Christian, the last couple of topics, we've talked about the atonement and elements of salvation. We were talking about that first arrow. And today we're going to kind of talk about the next two arrows. Right. So the Christian life encompasses then how we live to honor God, the kind of character and behavior that uh, is developed in us through what we call a sanctification. We'll talk about sanctification but it also encompasses the, the purpose of the Christian life. You know, why are we here? Is it just to become a better person? The, there's, a, there's an outward purpose that both toward God and toward people around us as well, and that's encompassed in the, in the third arrow of the Pursue God circle. Okay, so before we jump into all that, are we saying, let's just make sure we're clear on what we are saying and what we aren't saying. Are we saying that a person isn't saved until they go full circle? Until no, they've yeah. honored God in their life and they've gotten rid of sin and until they start making disciples, that a person isn't saved until they do all three of those things? No, that's a fair question. We're saying that we're not saying that at all. A person is saved, as we talked about in the last episode, at that moment of conversion, faith and repentance. But what happens is that then that, that being saved, it affects a change of identity and a change of um, of both standing and um, of who we are, and God makes us a new creation, so that we're going to live a different way. We're going to live a new way as a result, not as the cause, but as the result of being saved. Because it doesn't, salvation is instantaneous. Conversion, right. uh, what do we, regeneration is instantaneous. Yeah. But sanctification, we'll talk more about that here at the outset, sanctification is not instantaneous, it's a process. Yeah, and the difference, one of the big differences between the two is salvation is entirely a work of God that we receive by faith, and it's a change in our standing with God as, as well as our identity. But this ongoing process of the Christian life is, is still a work of God. We still can't do it without God's power and God's work in us, but there's also an element of our cooperation. So we talk about God's part and our part, there's an element in which we make certain choices that um, that could hinder or that could get in step with what God wants to do to develop this this new life in us. Okay, so the words that we're using here, there are two words that are sort of interchangeable, right? We're talking about sanctification, but another word for that is holiness. Mm-hmm. And when you think about holiness, you can break it down to two things. Let's talk about the two sides of holiness. One is positional holiness, and the other one is practical holiness. What do we mean when we talk about positional holiness? Yeah, this, is, this has to do with our standing before God. Now, this is an important thing, because when people think of holiness, they usually think about a lifestyle change, or the kind of person that we are. But what comes first, before we can even consider that, what comes first is this <clears throat> positional holiness is the standing that we have as Christ followers. So it goes back to the Old Testament, where in the sacrificial system, there were certain people, objects, animals, places that were set apart for God's use only. 
Like there were utensils that were used in the tabernacle that could only be used there. So that priest never said, oh, yeah, oh, I need, a, I need this spatula. I'm going to take it home, borrow it to overnight, you know, bring it back tomorrow. Um, no, because it was set apart or dedicated or consecrated, all sort of interchangeable words, to be used by God only. So it was, never, it was removed from common use or profane use. It belonged to God. It was only for Him. And that's the background when we talk about positional holiness or positional sanctification, that as Christians, from the moment of conversion, we're set apart to belong to God. We're consecrated, not in the sense of consecration, like I'm, I'm surrendering my whole being to God, you know, this sense of like, are you consecrated? Well, it, but more in the sense of like God says, you belong to me, and you're set apart to, to be owned by me. You don't belong to the common world anymore. So, in, so what we're saying with positional holiness is, in the eyes of God, our standing with God, we have already been declared holy, set apart, perfect, righteous. So mm-hmm. there's this declaration. It's almost like in the court of heaven, we're declared to already have all of the righteousness of Christ in our account. Right. So there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of analogies that could work for that. So if you have a passport then the passport declares that you're identified as a citizen of your country. And so that's your standing. That's your identity. The same thing with holiness. So that's why this has been confusing to probably to a lot of people. Reading the New Testament, they, they use the word saints a lot. And so Paul says in some of the translations, to the saints in Ephesus. Mm-hmm. And he says, grace and peace to you, and so forth, to the saints in Corinth. You know, and, and he goes on, and he's greeting... That doesn't mean he's only writing to like the super godly people. Right. He's writing to everybody in the whole church. Because we are saints, or in some of the modern translations call it God's holy people, because we've been sanctified, see the relationship between those two words, meaning that we now belong to him, we're set apart to him, he, uh, he, we're his, and so um, we're positionally holy. And so positional holiness is already ours. It happens at the moment of conversion. Correct. But So that's the already part of sanctification. But then there's a not yet part of sanctification, and that's what, what we're calling practical holiness. So you're already positionally set apart for God. That's done. But on the, in the everyday world, mm-hmm. you're not fully holy. That's the part that's progressive. Right. That's the part that is a, is a process of transformation transformation that takes place over a lifetime until, you know, this life is over. We're hopefully, we're progressively, you could say, okay, positionally we're set apart to belong to God, but practically our goal is to be set apart increasingly from the experience of sin in our lives and to become more and more like Christ and reflecting his, his character in us. And to reflect sort of the process of this, the New Testament gives us three analogies to describe this this growth in the Christian life. The growth of a plant, you see that in 1 Corinthians 3. The growth of a building, you see that in 1 Corinthians, also in 1 Corinthians 3 and then Acts 20. And then the growth of a child. But each one of these, whether a plant or a building or a child, each one of these progressively grows. Right, and that's that's a picture of the Christian life. So um, that's what God is doing in us, and that's what our choices can help to cooperate with that or can, can get in the way of that. By the way, this isn't, um, this isn't just an o- optional for the Christian. 
You know, this is, this is God's purpose for us. This is what God desires to happen in our lives. Um, and in fact, God, the, the New Testament says really clearly, be holy because I am holy. God says, be holy. In 1 Peter chapter 2, and he talks about um, not living the empty life that, that we lived before, not, not being cap- captive to the practices and attitudes that, we, that captivated our lives before, but be increasingly more and more uh, reflective of, of the character of Christ. In, in other words, don't use grace, as Paul says in Romans, don't use grace as a license to sin, which I think a lot of people mm-hmm. maybe would have gotten through the, the atonement episode and the salv- elements of salvation right. episode, and they think, oh great, I'm saved, I've got this free get-out-of-hell card now, and they misunderstand the grace of God, thinking that God, God, you know, Jesus went to the cross so that I could live a life however I want to live. Mm-hmm. Actually, the Bible makes it very clear, though, no, he went to the cross so that you could be set free from your slavery to yourself. Right, exactly. Now, to uh, nuance that just a little bit, we'll never be totally holy in this life. We'll never be sanct- totally sanctified in that, in that process sense of it in this life. Um, never reach a place where I can say, oh, God, you know, I'm done with sin, got it covered, you know. Um, but we're moving in that direction, and as we're going to see in the next episode, that process becomes complete, and we are completely freed from sin at the point of, of death, when we move from this life into the next life. Now, is that what every Christian believes, Ross? Because I know that in, in, theolo- in history, in church history, there have been movements there have been teachers who would maybe push up against that statement. Aren't there some who would say, no, you can achieve perfect holiness in this life. That's the goal. We want to achieve perfect mm-hmm. holiness. Yeah, it, it, it is in certain movements. Um, complete love, it's sometimes called, or uh, sinless perfection, it's sometimes called. And in my experience, first of all, scripturally, I'd, I don't think that the Bible can bear that up, because it, it constantly talks about our, our sin. It tells us it tells us not to sin. So, for example, First John chapter two, verses two, it says, you know, don't don't sin. We're we're not called to a life of sin, but it says if you do sin, then yet we have an advocate, the one who's gave given up his life for the world. And so there's that tension. Don't sin, but but when we do sin, you know, we're covered by the by the blood of Jesus. And so and then in, in as I've interacted with some of the proponents of the of that approach. I find that in practical reality, they end up minimizing what really is sin and what really isn't in order to deal with. So they're not going to, no, nobody I've ever known with that position has been guilty of really egregious major sins. But the pervasiveness of sin and sinfulness in our character way down deep, the, t- the sense in that approach is like sin gets boiled down to just actions. Just okay. Well, I didn't do this. I did, but but the idea that sin affects and permeates and taints everything, you know that that it's hard to take that seriously if you if you think that, you know, you can achieve some level of of conscious sinless perfection. Yeah, and Paul talks about this in Romans seven. Paul talks about it in Galatians five, where mm-hmm. where he he explains that there are two natures in us. Mm-hmm. So if there was only one nature in us, then yeah, sin could be eradicated. Right. But that's not how salvation works. And therefore, that's not how sanctification works. Salvation doesn't eradicate the old nature. It gives us a new nature. We, mm-hmm. Now we have a new nature, and as Paul describes, these two, nat- these two forces are battling within us. He doesn't say one of them is just completely gone. Right, exactly. And that's, I think that's re- 
relatively true to most Christians' experience anyway. Well, I I think that's why it's important to talk about, because some Christians might question their salvation Mm -hmm. because they still struggle with the flesh, or they still struggle with the old nature. Mm -hmm. And what I love about Scripture is that it makes it clear that even, even the most godly people among us still have that struggle. It's a battle, it's a fight, mm-hmm. and it's, it's a process. And you see it in the Apostle Paul, even if, you'd look at, <clears throat> if you look at his comments over time, from earlier to later, you know, by the time he's done, he's writing the last books that he wrote, he, he identifies himself as the chief of, of sinners, he's a main sinner. So he didn't, he didn't say, you know, I've, I'm, getting, I'm getting better and better all the time, he said, you know, he got this increasing sense of the depth of his sin the longer he was on this earth. Hmm. You know? Okay, so let's go back to who, whose job is sanctification. You know, we said last week that salvation is all God's. Jesus did 100% of the work. We do 0% of the work. How do the percentages break down when it comes to salvation? Yeah, it's, it's I don't know if you could say 50-50, but both both. God and the human are involved. Um, both both parts are um, really indispensable. So I can't I can't do like okay God's done His part now I do my part. But no, they're they're interchanged. They're intertwined. They're like woven together like like a braid, where there's certain things that that only God can really do in the sanctification process. The Holy Spirit has to be at work within the believer. He's empowering us to put to death the the, the old deeds. Uh, to grow in personal holiness. Romans 8 talks about that battle and how, how we're dependent on the Holy Spirit to win that battle. And he's illuminating the Word of God. It's it, it, using it in our lives. He's producing the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit uh, of a changed life. And so we can't do anything. We can, we can never become sanctified without the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. So that's one side of it. But yet the there's even just in that passage in Galatians where it talks about the Spirit produces this fruit in our lives. Then Paul goes on to say at the end of that chapter, so therefore walk by the Spirit. So right. clearly there's something that the believer has to do to participate mm-hmm. with the Holy Spirit to produce that fruit. Right. We have choices to make. God doesn't override our choices. Um, you know, We have to keep in step, as it says there too, walk by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, live by the Spirit. There's many to be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5. And so there's all of these appeals made to the human will, to our choices. And Second Peter says, you know, to diligently apply. It says, to your, you know, faith add, you know, I can't remember the sequence, but he says, to this, add this, and then add this, and then add this, and then you'll become complete. And um, Hebrews 12 says to seek diligently the holy, holiness. And so there's our part... And, and God, so God isn't going to just um, take us there passively, independently of our cooperation with Him. Um, it's all about His grace, it's all about His power, but I have to make some choices that activate that or actualize it in my life. Now, here are some of the ways that Scripture <clears throat> describes those choices. I think it's good to look at these six different things. And some of it might feel a little bit up there in the clouds a little bit, but it's important to understand the language that the New Testament writers employ. They talk about allegiance to God ahead of the world. They talk about surrender to God's will, and they talk about obedience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are, those are pretty straightforward, I think. But So in 1 John 2, he says, don't love the world or the things of the world, because those things are passing. He says, if anyone loves 
the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So it creates this, what's our allegiance? Is it to God or is it to the world around us? In Romans chapter 12, it talks about offering ourselves as living sacrifices uh, to God. In, in John chapter 14, Jesus says, this is, how, this is how you show that you love me, you do what I say. And so, you know, those are, those are tangible. Yeah, so th- the next set, those were the first three. The next three are following the Holy Spirit, like we mentioned in Galatians 5, or even just trusting God, just the idea of trusting God. And then this concept of dying to self that we see in Mark chapter 8. Yeah, where Jesus says, look, if you want to follow me, you got to take up your cross. And, and, and he says, if you want to save your life in this, in this life, you're going to lose it. You know, in talking about greater life, and your immediate physical and material mortal life in this world versus this greater spiritual life in relationship with him, we can hang on to what we've got in the world and we'll lose the greater thing. Is take up your cross. When people saw a, a criminal carrying a cross, they knew he was heading toward to death. And so Jesus says, you know what, you, gotta, you have to be willing to die to all that old stuff, all your identity apart from me, everything that matters in, you, in your life ex- that's not from me. There's a, there's a certain kind of a death that takes place with respect to those things that unfolds the, uh, the lordship and the power of Jesus in our life. Okay, so the Holy Spirit then is, I would say, first and foremost, the Holy Spirit is the one who really offers us sanctification. Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit is, is the one who is operating in us to affect sanctification in our lives. But there are also some external means, aside from the Holy Spirit, and there are at least a few of them. One would be just the church, the, mm-hmm. the other believers, the people of God. Right. So, so you know, I would, I would say that these also work in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is using these means in our lives. Mm-hmm. So he can work directly, he can bring conviction, he can, he, can, he can work immediately, you could say, within my spirit, my, my own spirit, but he uses these means of the church. So... You know, the Ephesians 4 tells us that God gave the offices or the leadership of the church in order to facilitate the ministry of all God's people so that we become mature and so that, you know, that we're no longer like infants, like children tossed around. And so the offices of the church, the leaders of the church, but beyond that, the ministry of all of God's people. Over and over and over again, the New Testament talks about how we encourage one another, how we build each other up and so forth, so that other people can help us resist that sin and overcome it and, and move forward in our lives um, as we are connected with them, and they speak into our lives and we speak into theirs. Yeah, it's interesting in Galatians 5 where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit versus the works of the flesh. Then you turn the chapter in Galatians 6, Paul tells us what to do when somebody struggles in this area and the flesh wins out over the spirit. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, he doesn't say kick them out of the church, they're, 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 they must not be Christians because they mm-hmm. let the flesh win out. No, he said you should just gently restore them. Yeah. And he's admonishing believers, other believers, he said, hey, look, mature believers, he's not just talking about pastors and leaders and elders, he just said, look, mature believers, those of you who are doing okay right now in these areas, gently help those people to get back onto the right path, the path of sanctification, if we're going to use language from today's yeah, episode. That's really a good point, Brian, and the, the flow from Galatians 5 into Galatians 6 shows really this synergy between you know, God's part and the human part, 
um, in sanctification. It's not just left up to let the Holy Spirit work or just used to keep in step with the Spirit, but then it brings the, the church in. It says, well, sometimes I didn't keep in step with the Spirit, and I need help to get back on track again. Okay, so the church is one of the means of Christian growth, but the second thing then is more of a personal thing. It's what we would call spiritual disciplines mm -hmm. or spiritual habits, mm -hmm. that that's a means of growth. In other words, what we're saying, Ross, is for the person listening who's a Christian who would say, I've sort of stagnated, we would say to them, tell me, what, tell me about your spiritual disciplines, and right. what do we mean when we say that? Yeah, the pro these, are the, these are the practices. They're mostly private. They're not entirely private practices, but they're mostly private practices that put us in connection with God on a, on a regular, on a daily basis. And so as we're connecting with God and as, and as, he, and as we're, um, we're putting that into practice, He's working in our lives. So we have prayer, we have Bible reading, Bible study, and some, some things related to that, Sabbath, and, and we talk about slowing down, we talk about silence maybe sometimes, and those are practices that allow us to declutter our, our hearts and minds so we really hear from God and and, and, and he can, it, put us, it puts us in the pathway of his work in our lives. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and, but some of them are more outward. I think worship and serving and giving and discipling other people, those are spiritual disciplines too. Anything's a spiritual discipline if it doesn't come naturally and I have to be intentional about it. Right. But God uses those in my life. He uses worship in my life to, to lift my, um, my perspective toward him. He uses giving in my life to purify my relationship with material goods and to help me to uh, clarify my allegiances. He uses serving in my life to stretch me and to, to grow uh, my capacity to love like Jesus loves and, and so forth. So all of those are, are things that we do intentionally because they don't necessarily come naturally, but God uses those in our life to help us to grow, to transform us more like Christ. Yeah, what comes naturally to us is to put ourselves first and to, mm -hmm. and to think about ourselves in our own comfort, but a discipline is when we say, no, there's something, there's something more for me. This, like you said, this doesn't come naturally to me, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to discipline myself to do these things, mm -hmm. and it might even hurt a little bit as I do it. Now, we'll talk about, I think, the forgotten discipline here a little bit more in a minute, uh, discipling people. I mm -hmm. think that's really the, dis that, to me, that's the secret sauce of Christian growth. You know, one of the things we say in our in our pursuit series is that we mature by helping someone else. In right. other words, we don't disciple someone else, which means walking with them, helping them to learn about salvation and sanctification. That's called discipling someone. We don't wait until we're perfect and mature and we have it all figured out to start helping someone, because if we did, we wouldn't ever get we'd there. Never do it. Yeah, right. we'd never do it. Because the way God has designed it, and this isn't just true spiritually, this is true in anything, parenting, math, mm -hmm. any, any subject. If you really want to learn the subject, you have to teach it. Best way to learn it. Yeah, the best, best way, to, way learn to learn it. it. And so somebody else. if you want to learn sanctification, if you want to grow up, and this is my kids learned this, and I learned this when I was a teenager, it's to help somebody else because when you start helping somebody else, you really start to understand it and grow in it, right. sanctification, right. as you do. You don't just understand it uh, mentally, although that you, although you're going to understand it intellectually better because you've had to study, think it through to share with somebody else, but also 
in order to not be a hypocrite, I, I need to start learning what I'm talking about and living what I'm talking about to the other person. So I start, because I, I don't want to go in and just be empty words. So I'm trying to live it. I'm trying to, to learn by experience what I'm trying to impart to them. And then the other thing about it is that it puts me beyond my comfort zone and outside of my natural ability. So I have to depend on God more fully than ever before. Yeah. And so that's really an important consideration that sanctification or growth in the Christian life really is um, catalyzed when we're willing to pour into somebody else. Yeah, and Paul says it in Ephesians 4. He says, go read it for yourself. But he basically says is, look, when you start discipling, when you, a regular Christian, start starts to disciple someone, then you will mature, mm -hmm. then you won't be tossed about by every wave of new teaching that mm -hmm. comes along. And it really is true that if you're just a consumer, if your Christian life boils down to going to church once a week or twice a month, which is really the average, kind of the new norm, then that yeah. you, it's just you're just simply not going to grow. That I mean, there's just no two ways. You're just not going to grow. You're not going to grow your convictions. You're not going to grow in your personal spiritual life in your sanctif in your holiness you're going to just live like the world if right. if if you really essentially are just living like the world except for maybe 2 hours a month right you show up at church and then you go back to it right right yeah okay so so that the holy spirit uses the church as a means for growth the mm -hmm. holy spirit uses spiritual habits or spiritual disciplines as a means for growth and this last one is is going to hurt a little bit the Holy Spirit also uses suffering as a means for growth. Yeah, sign me up, right? No. <laughs> now, that's hard to hear that, because none of us likes to endure hardship in our lives, but it's really clear in the New Testament, in a number of passages, that God uses adversity to purify us, to make us more Christ-like. So Hebrews chapter 12 says that when you go undergoing hardship, it's God's discipline, but it has this effect. It says, in the end, it brings forth a harvest of righteousness and peace to those who've been trained by it. Kind of implying that I have to be willing to be trained by it, but, but it brings forth this, this kind of person that we really want to be in the end. And James chapter 1 says, don't, he says, don't be surprised when you go through different kinds of trials, because <clears throat> you know that those trials are going to develop endurance, and that endurance is going to lead to maturity in your life. And so it makes sense how God uses hardships to do that, because hardships purify what we really love. Hardships force us to depend entirely on Him. Um, they get our attention sometimes. You know, they, they help us to, to really reflect on what matters most and what's really eternal. Well, this is why, if we back up a second, this is why I think spiritual disciplines are so important, because in essence, spiritual discipline is doing something you don't want to do. That's mm -hmm. what a discipline is. And so when you train yourself in the good times to be disciplined, which includes things like fasting, that's probably the hardest discipline. That's, yeah. That brings in the most suffering into <laughs> our lives, right? Yep. And, and so when we discipline ourselves that way, I think, number one, I'm banking on maybe maybe the Lord won't have to bring so much suffering into my life <laughs> right? because right. I've invited it in the disciplines. But even, even when he does, I think those spiritual disciplines prepare me mm -hmm. with this mindset that says, this life's not really about me. It's not about my comfort, that's for sure. Right. That's a great point. There is a relationship. Yeah. Okay, so sanctification isn't just about inward holiness. It's also, and we've kind of been hinting toward this, it's also about outward purpose, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You know, really, if, if, God, if God's greatest purpose for our life was that we 
have a Christ-like character and that we, I mean, that's certainly important, or that we had behavior. You know what? The simplest way to accomplish that is to just take us out of this world into glory, right? So, but, so there must be some greater purposes, and the Bible talks about a couple of purposes that are outwardly focused that aren't just about me. One of them is uh, the purpose of the Christian life is to glorify God and, and bring glory to Him. And so as we, as we live this Christian life, our worship, our allegiance to Him, our obedience to Him, all of these demonstrate that God is worthy. They point toward His honor and His greatness uh, before the watching world. Well, and then as we've also said, it's, it's this other part of outward purpose is to point people to, to that God and offer the you know, what the New Testament calls the gospel message, mm-hmm. off, offer the good news to the world, to the mm-hmm. watching world. That's part of our sanctification, in essence, right? This disciple-making that we've just been talking yeah, about. Yeah, uh, we're called in many places to go and be witnesses of Jesus, to go and be ambassadors of, of Christ in the world, uh, representing Him in the world around us. So, And that's, that's one reason um, God wants to work on our character and our behavior, uh, so that we're prepared for that larger purpose, so that we're equipped for it, and that we're credible in that message, um, and so that you know we can we can handle what might whatever might come. Okay, there's one more thing, Ross, that we should probably talk about because anyone who's clued in at all to doctrine and theology, when when they talk about sanctification, one of the questions that comes up, one of the debates that comes up, has to do with this idea of perseverance. And here's the question. Will a Christian, someone who's been saved, Mm -hmm. will that Christian persevere in faith until the end of his or her life, or can a believer fall away from faith? This is a a big debate among churches even to this day. Yeah, it's a pretty common debate uh, in different circles, and, you know, probably most of our listeners are going to be in one circle or another, and probably most of the people you talk to in your circle are going to see things your way. So, Many of us have never really had a conversation with somebody from the other perspective, or maybe even didn't even know the other perspective existed. But both of them are both of them are attempts to understand what the Bible teaches and to put the Bible's teaching into the context of the larger picture. And so, you know, both of them have some credibility. They they both can't be true entirely, you know. And, and but but it's um it's a uh, what your presuppositions are, maybe your how you re, how you interpret scripture, because there's certain verses in the Bible that seem to indicate that the believer is going to be secure uh, until eternity, and there's other verses that seem to indicate that the believer needs to be careful not to fall away. Okay, so let's break these down, and we're spoiler alert: we're not going to tell our listeners which one's right. <laughs> yeah, not really. I, I think my biases probably came through. It will come through in our conversation and maybe yeah. in the article, but uh, we're going to try to be fa- as fair as we can. Okay, so one position argues that the Christian cannot lose his or her salvation, either consciously or unconsciously. If, you know, some, some people have called this once saved, always saved. Yeah, that's the common way to yeah. talk about it, yeah. But even that, you know, even that some people would would be offended by that, you know, that that's kind of, you're showing your hand a little bit if you call it once saved, always saved. It's maybe yeah. a little bit derogatory to say it like can that. Can be, can be. It's okay. a shorthand, yeah. So this perspective is is often rooted in the Calvinistic view 
of salvation. But it's not just Calvinists who believe this, right? No, it's not. We'll, we'll talk about it later. But it is But it is most frequently connected. And we talked about the Calvinist and the Arminian perspectives on salvation, on um, the atonement, uh, two episodes ago. So we're kind of building on that. This is one of the implications, or potentially an implication, of, of those two systems. Yeah, so I'm a math guy, so this... this un- the formula makes sense to me for a Calvinist. The formula, mm-hmm. it's very logical. I'm not saying I'm a Calvinist. I'm just saying that I understand mm-hmm. how how A plus B equals C, right? right? So the whole idea is, if you remember with Calvinism, salvation is based on God's unconditional choosing. He predestines. He chooses some for salvation and others not for salvation. And so because of that, if you're chosen... You can't be unchosen, right? Right. That would be an act, that would take an act of God. Why would God do that? You know, um, if He selected you, that's that's His eternal choice. Yeah. So again, for a Calvinist, the Calvinist is elevating the sovereignty of God, right? And saying, look, God is sovereign; it's God's deal. So if if you've been chosen, then you're in. It, right. You're the you know so the the call is irresistible. You can't resist the call if you've been chosen. You're, and you're going to persevere, that's the P at the end, you're going to persevere to the end. In other mm-hmm. words, you're not going to fall away. Right. And again, the reason it's related to sanctification is because what we're talking about is somebody who just starts living a completely unrepentant, unsanctified right. life, right. clearly doesn't look like a Christian. So what would a Calvinist say about that person? Well, that, I think the Calvinist would say that that person may have made a profession of faith at some point in time and may have even been within the life of the church and looked like a Christian, but ultimately the fact that they did not persevere to the end showed that they never were a Christian in the first place. Okay, so Ross, answer this for me. We didn't prepare for this, so I hate hate to put you on the spot. (laughs) It seems to me that one of the problems—I'm not saying it's— this this has anything to do with its veracity. It just seems to me that one of the outcomes of this— is a Calvinist who really understands this is probably in the back of their mind thinking, I wonder if I'm really chosen or if or if I if I'm just fooling myself. And I won't know. But you know, and, yeah. unless yeah. I persevere to the end. Am I thinking about it too simplistically? No, I, I that has been a question. In in societies that were dominated by Calvinism, um, in his in church history, in after the Reformation, society, societies that were completely Calvinistic, this was not assumed. It was not assumed that because you were involved in the life of the church or that you'd been baptized or whatever, that you were part of the elect. Um, it would it, so, Sometimes it would go so far as say you can never really know until the end of your life and you die that you were really part of God's chosen. Um, to me, the, the fruit of election, or if God really did choose you, then, then you really are saved, and then that, that's going to take shape in the Christian life. That's going to take, mm-hmm. and so your life. Not and and there's a, there's there are three kinds of um, uh, assurances that the Bible gives. Number one is the Holy Spirit says bears witness to our spirit. Romans eight that we're children of God. So the Holy Spirit, if I if I have this c- conscious sense of identification as a, as a child of God, and my heart is going Abba Father, that's an evident. That's mm-hmm. evidence that I am that I am truly saved. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of other ones too. One is a changed life. Not a perfect life, like we said, but if but it begins to bear fruit. First John chapter two talks about and chapter three talk about how we bear fruit that that shows that we really are children of God. 
And then the other one is simply the, the declaration of Scripture. In 1 John chapter 5, it says, it says, I write this to you so that you know. He says, if you have the Son, you have the life. And so I, I'm aware that I have the Son. I've trusted Jesus. I've invited Him to, to take over my life. So that's an assurance. So there is reason for assurance, even in a more Calvinistic perspective on things. Mm -hmm. Okay, so before we move on to the other position, Ross, it's not just Calvinists who would, who would take this eternal security position. It would also... Right, it would also be people who might not say they're five point Calvinists, right. but they still hold to eternal eternal security. What kind of church would you go to if that's the case? Well, I, you know, I don't really know. I know that um, there's a lot of just sort of middle of the road evangelical or non denominational churches that would hold that position, but they wouldn't necessarily call themselves Reformed or Calvinistic. Mm -hmm. There would be a number of Baptist type churches that would do that, and um, you know, many. Many, many of the non-denominational churches in America today would probably have that position. Okay, so that's the eternal security position. You can't lose your salvation. The other position, and sometimes this is called conditional security, is associated with uh, what we'd be what we would call an Arminian view of salvation. This, by the way, is how I grew up. I grew up in a charismatic church. Uh, not every charismatic church is Arminian, but but yeah. the church tradition that I grew up in. Again, I didn't even know anything about Calvinists or Arminians. It's not like you go to a church and they talk about it. Probably, yeah, probably not. Certainly not if you go to an Arminian church. Maybe right. if you go to Reformed church, they but, might run that up the flagpole. Yeah, right. but but typically, no. It's just it's discovered just by their view on things. Their view on things like this. Right. Yeah. Okay, so this view argues that salvation can be lost, right? That you can, just like you, you, res, you freely responded to God's offer of salvation, you responded to it, you weren't predestined, you weren't, you weren't it wasn't irresistible, right, to mm -hmm. kind of go back with the right. Calvinist things. Then in, in, a, in a similar vein, I think just like Calvinists might emphasize the sovereignty of God, an Arminian would emphasize the free will yeah, human freedom and responsibility, yeah. and that. So that you're right. That's the theme that goes through the whole argument, because if if human freedom and responsibility really is a thing, and it, we take it seriously, then a person you'd expect would be able to um, reject Christ, even after accepting Christ at some point. So, which one's true? <laughs> Well, you know, there's there are there are biblical passages that um, that give us some fodder on for both sides. There's passages in the Bible that where Jesus says, "Everyone the Father gives me, I'll never lose." Um, and there's passages in, on the other side that the Bible says, you know, "Hey, don't fall away. Mm -hmm. You know, stay true, be faithful to the end." So, <clears throat> I think it's possible to have an eternal security perspective without being Calvinist. But, but here, here's the thing. I find that for both parties, really, the practical action is the same. Okay, so let's say we're riding, in the, riding down the highway in the back of a pickup truck. I know people don't do that anymore, but uh, we did when I was growing up. And uh, we might have a debate about whether the tailgate is open or shut. Well, regardless of whether you think the tailgate is open and you could fall out of the truck... Or if you think the tailgate is shut and you're not going to fall out of the truck, regardless, <clears throat> it makes sense for everybody to stay as close to the cab as possible. You know, in other words, if we stay close to Jesus, it ultimately becomes a non-issue in the personal life. 
If I'm staying close to Jesus, I'm pursuing him. I am working through the spiritual disciplines and, and I want to be conformed to the image of Jesus, then I'm secure regardless. It doesn't matter if I could the theoretically lose my salvation. Excuse me for a sec. <clears throat> theoretically, I could lose my salvation, but I'm not going to because I'm staying close to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Or theoretically, I couldn't lose my salvation, but it doesn't matter because I'm staying close to Jesus. Mm-hmm. So on a practical level, I think it looks much the same on both sides. Yeah, I don't think you need to have this completely ironed out. In fact, I would, I would encourage our listeners that if you feel like you have this completely ironed out, I would just encourage you not to make this so central to your message with people. Mm-hmm. Because I think if it was supposed to be there's only one way to see this as a Christian, like salvation, there's only one way to see mm-hmm. the fact that we're saved by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. That is just very clear. There's very it's, there's very little gray area when it comes to that. There's gray area when it comes to this particular issue. Mm-hmm. And I think I think it's important. I, I believe this is how I've always discipled people is I'm I'm going to major on the majors. Mm-hmm. And in the areas where it's gray, I'll share my perspective yeah. for sure. But my perspective might change on this. Right. Uh, like I said, I grew up Arminian and then when I started to learn more about the Calvinist perspective, I really started to lean more that way. And for me, it's still a little bit, I'm still mm-hmm. exploring, I'm right. still understanding it. It's not central to my my salvation, my right. experience of salvation, but I'll never change my perspective on there's only, you know, we're saved through Jesus right. Christ. The, the gospel, basically. This isn't, I don't think this is a topic that I would say is central to the gospel. Now, other, other people might disagree. But for me, so the way it works out, when I'm reading the Bible and I come to the, one of the passages that's, that, that indicates that I'm secure because of the faithfulness of Jesus, I'll go, yes, thank you. And when I'm reading the Bible and I come to one of the passages that say, don't fall away, you know, guard your faith, I say, yes, I am, I'm going to, you know. So really, I just reading through the Bible, I'm just going to take the, the part about God's sovereignty at face value when I read that in Scripture, and I'm going to take the part about human freedom and responsibility at face value when I read that in Scripture. Mm-hmm. I don't have to try to make sh- to figure out how it all fits together. Yeah. I'll just let the Holy Spirit speak as I go. Yeah, that's good. And on this topic of sanctification, it is w- whatever you think about perseverance of the saints, God's Word is very clear that he wants us to live lives to honor him. So sanctification, holiness, is something that we're called to, and that's why it made the cut for our systematic theology right. series. Now, Ross, we're, we're wrapping up module three out of four, and it's some people might say, well, what else, what else could we talk about in systematic? We've covered salvation, we've covered God, we've covered Jesus, we've covered sanctification. Isn't that all there is? Where are we going in the next module? Right, where we're going is where we're going after this life is over. Mm. So we're going to talk about the future for individuals, what happens after death. We're going to talk about the future for the world, what's the bigger picture for what happens when, as God winds down this world and, and what happens in eternity, final judgment and all the rest. And, and in the middle, we're going to talk about the church. That, that's, that could be related to sanctification. We talked about the role of the church, but also the church has a future, um, and so that kind of it kind of wraps into that that topic as well. All right, so join us next time for topic number ten in systematic theology. And again, if you want to talk about this with your family, with your small group, or with a mentor, you can find it all at pursuegod.org forward slash systheo. We'll see you next week.